The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, in preparation for the supper, I, I'd like to read a few verses from the familiar text of 1 Corinthians 11. If you want to go ahead and find that scripture, 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul instructs the Corinthian church on the proper observance of the supper. And he says that this is information that he received directly from the Lord. Now, if you remember in our past studies of biblical discernment on Sunday nights that we've had these past few weeks, I referenced the second chapter of Galatians in which Paul said that he went to Jerusalem by revelation from God. And in that chapter, he defended his apostleship by saying that there was no man that had called him to the ministry, that his calling came directly from Christ. He didn't need anybody to teach him. And the apostles agreed with that assessment. They did believe that he was also called by the Lord and that they had not done anything to aid him, to give him instruction about the things of the word. Now, of all, uh, as with all Scripture, the words that the apostles wrote are the same words that God would have spoken if he spoke them to us directly. We have a promise here that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that's just as sure to us as if we were sitting right there when Jesus gave the Last Supper. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus gave the disciples a promise that he would arise from the dead, that he would go away for a little while, and then he would return to take them home to be with him. And uh, in uh, the, the same message was, was, was given to Paul, and he relates it with almost what seems to be a passing comment here in the 26th verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, we know much better that nothing that the Word of God says is a passing comment. It's all very important, but just this one little short phrase here. Let's look at it here in 1 Corinthians. We'll start reading in verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. You do show the Lord's death until he come. And there we have the promise of the return of Christ. Now, in the past few weeks, we, we've done a lot of study about end times. We go all the way back to the beginning of November. I began a series of messages on the delusion of the devil. And we talked about how Satan got his start, and we discussed the way that he works. And then we also looked at how God is going to deal with him, the method in which God is going to rid the world of Satan. And we've learned that what he will do is he will destroy uh, this earth as we know it today, and he'll replace it with a new earth where there's perfect righteousness, and so all that's going to be done away with. And then we began the series about heaven, 
And there we've learned that heaven, of course, is the final state of the redeemed. There's nothing that comes after heaven because heaven is eternal. It just never ends. And God's purpose is fulfilled. His fulfillment for all the creation happens when he gathers all of his people home to be in heaven. And by the way, if you, if you wanted another argument for eternal election, that you can see it in this, this one consistent purpose that you find throughout the scriptures, that, that God is going to bring his purpose to fulfillment, and that his people are peculiar, and they are particular, and he intends to bring them all home. And God is never surprised about who is going to be in heaven. Now, I thought it would be good for us to just to take a few minutes tonight to discuss this surety of Christ's promise that he will return. The Bible calls it the blessed hope of Christians. The final consummation doesn't happen until Christ fulfills his promise that's made in the earliest parts of Scripture. This is a, a precious promise that's found all throughout Scripture, beginning in Genesis, running all the way to the end in the book of Revelation. And, and, and along that path, along the way of revealing himself and then telling us that he promises to come again, he, he gave us this picture that we have of the supper. And he said, you are to observe this supper. It's a memorial supper, and, and it reminds us that Christ died for sin, that he arose for our justification, and also this, that he is coming back for us. So every time that we take the supper, we have that reminder. We renew this promise again and remember that Christ is coming back. So we look back to the past, to his death, and then we also look forward to that glorious future when he returns. And I think it's fair to us to say that the second coming of Christ is, is the heartbeat of Scripture. It underlies much, much of the Old Testament and numerous passages that speak of the restoration of Israel into its kingdom. That can't happen until Christ returns. And in the New Testament, we, we find places such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that just speak eloquently about the Lord's return. And we have this wonderful phrase in verse 17 of that fourth chapter where Paul writes, And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that's a phrase that's given comfort to Christians for centuries through persecution all that people have gone through. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now you might want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 as I talk about it for just a moment. We often pluck that scripture from its context without thinking why that Paul uh, dealt with the rapture in that particular place. And I don't intend to read 1 Thessalonians 4, but you might just want to look at it as I, as I talk about it for a minute. And uh, if you look at the beginning of the chapter, you'll see how that Paul encourages Christians to walk with the Lord. And he approached the Thessalonian church with a loving attitude to help them with their failures. And yet at the same time, he spoke very sternly to them about the duty of their sanctification. That living in holiness is not an option for God's people. This is fully expected of us. No matter what troubles that we go through, we are to remain holy and we're to keep serving the Lord, keep on fighting for that, for that, uh, that for, for working in the, uh, for the, the, the kingdom of God. So living in holiness is not an option for us. He calls us to that. And in verse number 4 it says, We must be sanctified and honorable because verse 7 says, God hath not called us to uncleanness but unto holiness. There's no mystery why we proceed the Lord's Supper with solemn examination. 
And this is because Paul always had this thought on his mind, the holiness of God's people. How paramount that is for, for us to live in holiness as we wait for the Lord to return. Peter said that in a little different way in Second Peter 3. He said, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all conversation and godliness? And so the point that I want to get across here is that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul was gentle, yet he was stern. He gave difficult commands, and he expected that they would respond in obedience. And then it was in verse number 13 that he abruptly changed the subject, and he moves on to talk about the coming of the Lord as comfort, as reward for giving themselves to the cause of Christ. So he changes the subject there, and, and, he, and, he, and he lets them know that although living for the Lord, it's going to be very difficult on our flesh. It's going to be hard for us, yet it's far more than worth it when we serve Christ. Now, these are people suffering under severe persecution. They needed to know that there was hope to look forward to, and Paul gave them that hope. That's why we have the end of Revelation, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It was to give them hope. They looked for Christ to return, and they were to keep thinking about that sure promise that they would be taken home to be with him forever. Now, as pastor, uh, looking for sermons to preach, I, I often wonder what, what subjects interested the apostles. What did they preach about the most? I mean, we don't have very many examples of their sermons in Scripture, just a few. And we know that they preached hundreds upon hundreds of sermons. They preached every day, everywhere they went. And during their lifetime, the gospel had been spread nearly all the way around the Roman Empire. So they were preaching all the time. What did they preach about? Well, I think that the topic of the second coming was probably a far more frequent subject than we preach it today. Persecution drives the need for this kind of preaching. And I think that we need more of it today. And I think we'll realize that we need more of it today as we, as we see the time of Christ approaching because Christianity in America is not what it used to be. Uh, we don't have the influence that we used to have. And, and we've kind of shunned the preaching of, of the second coming. But it just didn't matter to us too much because we were okay, doing okay. Things are all right. So we don't have to worry about this. There's no persecution. We don't need to take any comfort from it. But I think that what we're going to see as, as we become less and less tolerated as things are going on as they are, we're going to need more preaching about the second coming. And we're going to need it because we have to have that comfort that we receive from it. That going through what we go through and being ostracized by the world and having them turned against us, that we need the comfort that we're on God's side and that He's coming for us. Now, we're, as I said, Christianity's not mainstream any longer. We're less and less tolerated. And we're going to need the same comfort that first Christians needed. So we're going to need this. Uh, we're going to, we'll actually change our incentive, I think, for second coming preaching. We'll realize that we must have it. That we must have it for our comfort rather than, well, we just need to have it because the preacher says that you need to have it. No, you're going to be interested. You want to hear it. You want to know, is Christ coming for me? But in any case, lest we forget, we do have the supper given as a frequent reminder that Christ will return. Now tonight what I'd like to do is just look for a few minutes at evidence from the Scripture that the second coming is not just wishful thinking of a few Christian zealots. Oh, the second coming is a real thing. And the Bible speaks about it. There is evidence for it from God's Word. Now, is the second coming Sure, should you hope for it? Or have we missed the truth? Have we misinterpreted 
what Jesus and the apostles and the rest of the Word of God says? Is that misinterpreted? Or is this truly a Bible doctrine? We're just going to take a look very briefly at it tonight. First, I want to talk about it uh, from the perspective of the prophetic witness of the Scriptures, the prophecy that we find in Scripture. Now, in this text of 1 Corinthians, here we have proof that Paul believed that Christ was going to return. I mean, as surely as the cross of Christ is real, as surely as the death of Christ is real, so is also the reality that Christ is going to return. Well, we look at the Apostle Paul and we wonder, why is he trustworthy about this? Can we count on him? Can, can we believe what he says? Because we know that he's unlike the other Apostles. They sat under the personal ministry of Christ for three years. They walked with Him. They ate with Him. They slept with Him. They saw Him up close and personal every day. They were there, actually, immediately after the resurrection, to see the resurrected Christ. Paul's different. There's no evidence that he ever met Christ at any time during his earthly ministry. And if he did, we know that he would have had the same attitude towards Christ that the Pharisees did, perhaps even worse. Perhaps even worse, because he hated Christ so much. And he tells us in the Scriptures how much that he hated the gospel of Christ before he became a Christian. So he would have had the same attitude or worse than the Pharisees. They were intent on killing Christ. During those years, he was Saul. He was Saul the persecutor. He was an unbeliever. He was a self-righteous man. He's the one who said, you know, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And in his own mind, he was unblameable touching the law. Oh, how different he was when he said that I'm an apostle that's born out of due time. He became a follower of Christ probably one to two years after the crucifixion. And when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Jesus wasn't recently dead. He'd already ascended. He'd already gone back to the Father. And that made the appearance to Paul such an uncommon appearance because Jesus talked to him, spoke to him on the road to Damascus. And it was the voice of the risen Christ that convinced him. God spoke to his heart more than he did to his eyes. And you know why that's true? If Jesus were to appear in this room tonight, we wouldn't believe him because he appeared. I'm talking about to the one who is an unbeliever. We wouldn't be turned to Christ to believe in him because he appeared. We would never believe who he is unless God first changes our heart and makes us realize who he is. We would reject him just like the rest of the world does, even if we saw him tonight. So it wasn't the sight of Christ uh, that, that, that spurred Paul, caused him to believe. It was the words that were spoken. And we find this always to be true, that it is the Word of God that turns the heart. It's the Word of God that he uses to, to bring us to the realization of our lost condition. And so we receive Christ by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And what God speaks is actually more powerful than what we see with our eyes. So Paul was convinced by what God had settled before he was born. In Galatians chapter 1, he said it was by God's grace that he was called from his mother's womb. And that's an interesting thing that Paul says there because you can just kind of trace that back into the Old Testament and you could call Paul a New Testament Jeremiah. Jeremiah said the very same thing. That he was formed in his mother's womb and God called him from his mother's womb to be a, a prophet. So before either one of these two men knew one hand from the other, both had been selected by God. And we wonder about that. Who are we to dispute the time of God's selection? 
But our subject is not eternal election tonight. It's the promise of the coming of the Lord that's found here in the observance of the supper. And what Paul did was to always leave us with the impression that we are to be ready for Christ's return. Romans 13, 11, he said, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And what did Paul mean by our salvation is nearer? Isn't he talking to people that are already saved? What does he mean our salvation is near? That's actually the same thing as saying the coming of Jesus Christ is near. Our salvation, the final consummation, Christ coming for us, that time is near. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, he said, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. And in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, he said, Beloved, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And why is that statement true? Because his coming is nearer than it's ever been before. Today is the day of salvation. Now, those statements are written with the idea of Christ's imminent return, that people need to get ready for this. When Jesus returns, it's going to be too late to get ready. People need to get ready now. And Paul left the impression that we as Christians should be always busy because Christ is returning. So being ready for Christ, he's not talking about, well, go up here on, on uh, uh, Mount Sonoma, Sonoma Mountain there, or Mount St. Helena. Go up there and just sit and wait for me to return. Watch for me in the eastern sky, I'm going to return. That's not what it means to be ready for Christ's return. What it means to be ready is to throw yourself into the work of God. To be always busy about God's work. That's how we get ready for Christ's return. Or as we might say, and as Jesus said, work for the night is coming. When you're not going to be able to work any longer. So the urgency of Paul's encouragement points up the fact that Christ is coming. And so we take the supper tonight with, with uh, urgency, metaphorically, like the children of Israel, with shoes on our feet, ready to go at any time. Always ready for the coming of Christ. That's Paul's testimony. Well, next we have Peter's testimony. Peter had his own unique experience with Christ. Uh, he was one of the original twelve, but you know that he was also one of the inner circle of disciples. And he was one of three that was called up on the mountain to witness Jesus' transfiguration. And there he saw a glimpse of Christ in his glory. And that was truly like an Old Testament experience. Because for hundreds of years, God had not shown his glory to anyone. Now, we're talking about the temple uh, had been gone, or the light, the Shekinah glory that was in the temple, the evidence of God's presence there, that had been gone for centuries. The New Testament temple didn't have the Shekinah in it. God had not showed himself. He had not spoken to anyone. And it wasn't until John the Baptist came along and he prepared the way for Christ that the glory of God was going to be seen again. And this is what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why did this happen? To show that Christ is God. To show that God was veiled in human flesh. He was teaching that he was God. And so he showed these disciples by revealing his glory that he is the true living God. So that was a defining moment for these three men. It was a defining moment for Peter. Peter was convinced of Christ's imminent return by just things that he saw concerning Christ. And so he wrote in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, 
and watch unto prayer. Don't we often ask people, you hear this in preaching, what do you want to be found doing when Christ comes again? And here is an answer to that. To be sober. To be serious. To be sober-minded. It means to watch with seriousness and to watch with prayer. And we even find that as one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, the example that He gave us to pray. He said, pray, Thy kingdom come. That's a prayer about Christ returning and and taking His people home. So please come, Lord, watch with prayer. And that's very, this is very serious business. And when that prayer is answered, it means that the Lord comes in glory and with judgment. So the glory of Christ on that mountain was astounding uh, astounding sight. It was convincing proof. But Peter said, we have even more substantial proof than what they saw on the mountain. And you know what he said the greatest proof is? The prophecy found in the Holy Scriptures. What God said, what God wrote, was even more powerful than what those three apostles saw on that mountain. Well, thirdly, we have the testimony of James. Well, you know Peter, James, and John were all three up on the mountain, but the James that I'm talking about is not the James that was on the mountain. That James, the apostle, the original apostle that was chosen, left no writings. We don't have anything that James wrote. All we know is that James was long about there in chapter 12 of Acts, not long after the crucifixion, that he was killed by Herod. So he didn't leave anything behind for us to read. So I'm not talking about that James. I'm talking about a different James. And this was James, who was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the James that wrote the little letter in the New Testament, the book of James. He's the James that was what we would call a senior, or the senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem. But he sort of took things over there. And even if you read Acts chapter 15, I believe it is, you'll find there that James refers to the coming of the Lord in his speech that he gave in that, uh, in that particular chapter. But James was a, a very practical writer. Some think that he was less doctrinal than Paul. But on this subject, he was sure to get in his two cents worth about the coming of Christ. Now, an interesting thing about James is that he didn't believe who Christ was until he died and arose from the dead. His own brother that he lived with, he didn't believe that he was the Christ. Not until... Jesus arose from the dead. Then he became convinced of it. And this is what he wrote in James 5, verse 8. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now we look at James' writings, and he was very much down to earth about what we should do in this life. He said that we need to prove our faith by our works. But then he was also heavenly in his statements like this, and and why the works of a Christian are so important, and he gives that to us here. Why does he say it's important? Because the coming of the Lord is near. Now, fourthly, we go back to the mountain once again, and there was another apostle there. Moses and Elijah appeared to show that Jesus was the same God that they served, and John was there, and John relied heavily on, on that site of seeing Christ in the transfiguration to prove both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. You, you read through the epistle of John, and then you read First John and make the comparisons there of how John was so thoroughly convinced of Christ's humanity and his deity. 
And so he gave us the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then he also gave us the long, detailed information of the story of the second coming in the Revelation. And he says that the Lord is going to come in power and glory. He'll end this world and begin a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a new Jerusalem. And he tells us more about that than any other author in Scripture. And as with the others, John was writing to his readers and helping his people to understand the hope of the coming of Christ. Now, one of the things that John did was he warned quite a bit about false teachers. He warned against Antichrist. Now, as John uh, talked about Antichrist in 1 John, he wasn't talking about the big Antichrist who's coming at the end. Rather, he talked about a lot of little Antichrist are here. And then Antichrist is somebody who is against Christ. Anything who preaches the wrong thing and stands against Christ, that is an Antichrist. And that's a very strong word for him to use. And not a word that's readily accepted by cults and those who claim to be orthodox, like Pentecostals and popes. But why does he write about Antichrist? Because he wants people to know that Christ is coming to destroy Antichrist. 1 John 3, 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now the second coming has a powerful effect on the saved and on the lost, but it has a quite different effect on each. As the Word of God says, in one case he's the saver of life unto life, and to the other he's the saver of death unto death. And so here we have four great apostles, Peter, Paul, James, John, who wrote scriptures about the coming of the Lord and said it is imminent. And that's not even for us to take time to go into the Old Testament and find hundreds of scriptures there that speak about the coming of the Lord. So first then we have this prophetic witness of scripture. And then secondly, to know that the coming of Christ is real, there is also the powerful witness of the Savior, what did he say about his coming? Well, John 14 should be on our minds. That's what we used uh, and relied on heavily as we began the heaven series. And we started with John's, or Jesus' promise in John 14 that he was going to prepare a place for his disciples and that he would come again to receive them unto himself, that where he is, there they would be also. And that promise was given on the same night as the supper. It's part of all those teachings that took place in those middle chapters there going, or going on towards the end of John just before Jesus went to the cross. This is all part of that teaching. And so that promise is given on the same night. Well, Jesus, in other references that we find in the book of Revelation, also spoke about his imminent return. But before I read those to you, before we look at what Jesus said in the Revelation, I want you to understand this, because we don't want to take things out of context, and we don't want to hitch a meaning to something that's not really there. So you should be very much aware of this, that when we read these passages, that it speaks about the rapidity of, of actions that happen at the end of the world. In other words, when these things begin to happen, they happen very quickly. The length of time is very, very short, extremely short, compared to the time that we've been waiting for this to happen. How long have we been waiting for it to happen? Well, the world has actually been waiting for it to happen 
a long, long time, since almost the very beginning. We go back 6,000, maybe 10,000 years to the very beginning. And I'll tell you that I don't believe in the day-age theories of Genesis chapter 1. I don't believe that, uh, that days encompass millions of years in Genesis chapter 1. And you'll learn this and learn it very well, that in the scriptures where the word day is preceded by first, second, third, and so on, it always refers to a 24-hour literal period. I don't know how long it's going to be until Jesus comes. It could be tonight. It could be another 6,000 years. I reject the idea that we have signs that we can decipher. And those signs will tell us how long it's going to be until Jesus comes. We just don't know. And if we were to judge by signs, then we would say, well, surely God missed a perfect time to send Jesus back during the Dark Ages. When was it worse for Christians than then? We think we've got it bad now? What if you lived then? So we can't look for signs. Christ said that he could come at any time. It doesn't do any good to speculate or to build doctrines around obscure passages of Scripture that might contain some hidden sort of timeline. We don't know. But we don't have to know to believe that Jesus can come at any time. We don't have to know the time that he's coming. We can believe in the imminent return of Christ. He can come right now. People get confused on these things, and sometimes they think Christ can't come until there are certain signs that are fulfilled. Not until you see this, and you see that, until this happens, that happens. Then you can't, you can't, Christ can't come until that happens. No, Christ can't come now. There's nothing that has to be fulfilled for him to come now. So we wait, we wait and we expect the imminent return of Christ. Now the point that I want to make here, though, that in the Revelation, when we see these passages that, that Christ comes quickly... It refers to how rapidly those events are going to be set in motion. It took thousands and thousands of years uh, to get to the rapture. And we're still not there yet. I don't know how long it's going to be. It's thousands and thousands of years. But I know this, that when it happens, it's only seven years until Christ's kingdom comes on the earth. That's fast compared to all the time that it's been. That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, I come quickly. Things start to unfold, they unfold quickly. And when he comes in the rapture and appears in the air, then it's not long until his kingdom is set up on this earth. So when he comes in the air, we're on the fast track to the millennium. And the quickly passages in, refer in uh, Revelation are references to that. But we can also interpret them in this way, that Christ comes suddenly and without warning. We have these examples that are spoken by Jesus. Revelation 3, verse, 14, or verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Now there we have encouragement to be steadfast in the faith. Don't give up. Don't let the trials of life get you down. Now this was written to the Philadelphian church, this... Uh, this 11th verse, it's written to the Philadelphian church who had been oppressed by the synagogue of Satan. That was Jesus' description of unbelieving Jews that were oppressing Christians. He said, they are the synagogue of Satan. Now, as you know, in my experience here in some of the sermons that I preach, I'm probably not going to put on the sign out front that synagogues are synagogues of Satan. That's probably not going to go out there. 
But his encouragement is not to listen to those who say, you Christians need to give it up. You've been talking about this so long. You've been preaching this stuff so long. You need to stop doing that. He's not coming. Stop preaching about that. It's not going to happen. All things continue as they always have. It's not going to stop. It's not going to be different than it's always been. And Peter addressed that very thing in 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And there in Revelation 3, verse 11, we have Christ's answer to that claim. Don't believe it. He's coming soon. Revelation 22, verse 7, he says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now there we have a statement about obedience. Because he's coming, keep his commandments. Obey the Lord. Prove that you are a believer. Prove that you know Christ. How? Keep his commandments. John 14, 21, Jesus said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. I'm not sure if it was this past Wednesday night or when I was talking about this, but it amazes me how much people want to divorce the law of God from the grace of God to the extent that they say you don't have to worry about the law anymore. We live under the grace of God, so you don't have to worry about the law of God. That's foolishness. No, we have to obey the law of God. We keep His commandments. Jesus said, keep my commandments, and thereby you prove that you really do love me. What do you want to be found doing when Christ comes? How about this? Loving Him by keeping His commandments, obeying what He says to do. So how about being holy? How about being what God wants you to be, living a holy life instead of flirting with every sin that you're big enough to do? And that's a good idea, good advice for, for people that are always walking on the borderline between holiness and hell, because more often you look like hell than you do like holiness. Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus said, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Now there we have a great statement about lordship. Some claim Christianity, and they think, well, now I'm saved. Nothing else matters. I'm on my way to heaven. That's all that counts. Oh, you might want to checkmate that thinking, because real believers don't think that way. A real believer seeks the righteousness of Christ. It's not enough just to know I'm saved. Now I need to know, how am I going to live for Christ? What is my life supposed to look like from this point on? And I'll tell you what it's supposed to look like. Like Him. Like Christ. So here we have a statement about lordship. I'm coming back. I'm going to reward every man according to his deeds. Or What have you done for me? How have you lived for me? A great statement about lordship. And Christ, or is Christ, the Lord of your life? That's a good question. None are in the kingdom that refuse to be ruled by the king. You're not saved by your works. We know that. We're not saved by our works. But you're not saved without your works. Do you understand? Maybe that's a little hard to understand. Let me help you. There's nothing that you can do to help save you. But everything that you do shows that you are saved. It speaks about 
where they really know Christ. This is what James says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou hast believed there is one God, thou doest well. Pat yourself on the back. The devils believe also and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. So you better get that right, because Christ is coming back to reward every man according as his work shall be. And it just might turn out that your reward is hell. Check up on your salvation. Examine yourself. Well, there's a last reference that Jesus made to his imminent return, and this just happens to be the very last words that Jesus spoke in the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. And then John said, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Surely I come quickly. Quickly, those are the last words that Jesus spoke in Scripture. Surely I come quickly. Now let me tell you what those words mean to you. You need to live so as to be able to give the same response that John gave. Jesus said, I am coming quickly. And John said, let's go. We're ready. Come on, we're ready to go. Are you ready? Are you ready for him to come? Can you honestly say right here, right now, I am ready for Christ to return? You can actually test yourself on that answer. Go back and think about what you did last week. Go back, think about what you did last night. Are you proving that you're actually ready for Christ to return? I think that if Christ were to return, there are many of us who would be in a panic. And we begin to pray, not right now! He says, behold, I come quickly. And we say, well, not right now. Just hold on a little bit longer. I've got some things I need to straighten up. I've got to get right here. No, you're supposed to live like you're right all the time and ready to go at any time. Behold, I come quickly. And we need to respond to that. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We're ready to go to be with you. Now, that's why we urge you to repent often. Christianity is a religion of repentance. Faith and Repentance. Confess often. Make things right between you and God. Be ready. And certainly, we need to be prepared before we take the supper. Well, there's much more to say about this. I don't want to keep you too long. Maybe another time we'll look into a lot more proofs. But I do want to make one more point this evening. And we'll, and we'll do this one rapidly in keeping with the rapidity of the second coming. Uh, number three is the personal witness of the saints. That if you are a believer, the witness of Christ's soon return is in you. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now the Holy Spirit then is in the children of God. He witnesses of the hope that is in us. The proof that you are a child of God is that you believe the statement that Paul made in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 17. Then which we, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You believe that statement if the Spirit is in you. Now we have three types of hope because of the Holy Spirit. The first one is that we have an indwelling hope. An indwelling hope. Colossians 1.27 
to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does he mean? What is this hope of glory? Well, we take Colossians 1.27, we combine it with the next scripture, Titus 2.13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes this scripture is a puzzle that you need to put together. One of the things that I enjoy about Bible study is putting pieces together, putting scriptures together so that the doctrine that lies underneath is brought to life and to light and you can see what that doctrine is. The absence of indwelling hope and doubting Christ's second coming shows that you've never been regenerated. So if you don't have the hope of Christ's return, then you're not a Christian. 1 John 3, John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And listen to verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Oh, there we find another puzzle piece. Who are those who will not purify themselves? Who are those that live without evidence of their salvation? The answer to it is those who don't surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Now, now watch this for a moment. Those of you, maybe some of you are still stuck on the idea of carnal Christianity. What does John say? He says, a real Christian believes Christ will appear, and because he believes Christ will appear, what does he do? He purifies himself. That means that he works to be like Christ. He'll do it. He can't help but do it. And the reason he does is because the Holy Spirit is in him. He can't do anything else but this. And that's the work for that purification, to be sanctified. So if you don't do that, if you don't think about Christ coming, you don't sanctify yourself, you don't work for Christ, then you have no evidence that you are a Christian. So in short, we just sum it up again by saying carnal Christianity doesn't exist because a carnal Christian can't be a Christian. It's an impossible thing. Now, the second thing that we have, second type of hope, is a living hope. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, how? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do we have this living hope? Because of the resurrection of Christ. That He was raised to fulfill the promise that he will come back. If he's dead, he can't come back. If he's dead, he's not going anywhere. And so he arose from the grave. Sunday is Resurrection Sunday because he is alive and he's on his way back. And that fact is inherent in Paul's command when he says, do this, keep remembering the supper until he returns. So, he said, you show forth the Lord's death till he comes. Why can he come? Because he is alive. So we have indwelling hope. We have a living hope. Finally, we have an unfailing hope. This hope can't fail because it's anchored. Hebrews 6.19, which hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which 
and which entereth into that within the veil. Now, we need to get this reference because this is one of the sweetest things that we can read in Scripture. And it's actually tied to this very observance that we have tonight. Our hope is anchored within the veil. What is that veil? Well, the veil is the flesh of Christ. The veil is the body of Christ that he offered for sin. It's the blood of his flesh that was offered on God's mercy seat in heaven. And that's an allusion to the mercy seat that was in the tabernacle and in the temple where the priest went in behind the veil and he sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on that mercy seat as an atonement for God's people. And the way that you get through the veil is that you have to go through that sacrifice of Christ. Our hope of Christ is not in the blood of animal sacrifices sprinkled in a temporary temple. It's the precious blood of Christ anchored in eternity, in the heavenly sanctuary. And so we have unfailing hope of the second coming of Christ because His blood was shed for us. And I want you to think about that because now we see how all these pieces come together, how it all comes flooding into the picture of the Lord's Supper. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till He come. And so the command tells us, or the communion rather, tells us of his death, but it also speaks of his life. And it speaks of his return to take us home to be with him. That's our hope. And the Word of God says for us to seize on that hope and rejoice in it. Prepare for it by steadfast obedience and by faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the sure promises that are just written here over and over and over again that show us that truly Christ is coming. We look forward to that return. And Lord, we do say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. We're ready for you to come. And I hope that every person here tonight who's come to observe the supper is ready for your return. Thank you, Lord, for the promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.